Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to church. Are you ready for week six of the Summer of Love? Yeah, yeah some of you are really getting in the spirit. Um, hey, if you're new, we are spending our summer going through this uh, famous chapter of the Bible known as 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, you've probably heard it before. It goes like this. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. And today, yeah, God's word is worthy of like, that is the life we want. And today we've come to the piece of that description that talks about how to respond when sinned against. Some of you are like, man, I just clapped. Uh, um, now, if you're anything like me um, and you have a justice streak, you probably want to talk about the person who sinned against you and how we can protect the world from their madness. And, and this chapter will actually get there. Come back the next two weeks, and we're going to discuss uh, how love is a powerful force for justice in the world. Um, but before Paul gets there, uh, he wants to talk about you and me and how we personally respond when we are the ones who have to bear the brunt of the sin and the foolishness and the folly of other people in our lives. And see, the thing is this. I don't think anybody likes being sinned against. I don't think anyone's like, yes! Sin against me more. But according to this chapter, there is a way to respond when sinned against that can lead to a higher plane of existence that might actually lead us to say that's the life we want. And that's what we'll be looking at today. You ready? All right, then we're going to finish out verse 5 today and look at how love uh, is not easily angered, nor does it keep a record of wrongs. Uh, these two things, I think, really get at uh, the heart of how we tend to respond when sinned against. So let's look at them one at a time. Uh, the first way we can tend to respond when sinned against is we react. Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, imagine you're uh, driving home after a long day at work, and uh, you're stuck in traffic. Uh, let's say you're at that part of the 680. I don't know if you ever come by here where you go from five lanes down to three. Uh, I don't know why anyone thought that was a good idea, particularly where the 24 is coming on and you're actually adding more traffic. So sure, let's subtract lanes anyway. Uh, let, so, so traffic slows down. You had a long day at work, you're sitting in bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic, and, and you heard the message on patience, so you're just patiently, you're not lane-weaving, you're waiting your turn to get to the part where it's finally going to open up. And so there you are, exhausted from a long day at work, waiting for your turn for it to open up, and just as you get to the front, some maniac zooms by you in the exit lane and cuts you off in order to jump to the front of the line. Anybody been there? Anybody done that? I'm just kidding. Don't raise your hand. <laughs> okay, now what did you do in that moment? Because Jesus says to pray for your enemies and to bless those who persecute you. You didn't do that though, right? You honked, you yelled, you screamed, you reacted. That's what the Bible's getting at when it talks about love is not easily angered. See, some people misread this verse to say that love never gets angry, but that's not what it says. 
Some people will misread this and say love never gets angry. And so they'll look at the parts of the Bible that talk about the wrath of God and say, oh, that doesn't look very loving. And, and we'll get there in a couple of weeks. But if you explain away the wrath of God, you also explain away the love of God. Because if you truly love anybody or anything, there will come moments in life where anger is the only appropriate response. So there is a healthy kind of anger that the Bible wants to tell us about, that God experiences, that should be a great comfort to us when we are sinned against. But that's not what this verse is talking about. This isn't talking about a healthy anger towards gross injustice and evil. This is talking about someone who is easily angered. Uh, The English Standard Version, I like how they translate this word. They just use one word, irritable. Love is not irritable. See, again, it's not talking about a healthy anger against gross injustice and evil. It's talking about someone who treats every wrong as a gross injustice or evil. It's talking about someone who gets cut off in traffic and says, Why, oh Lord, when will you come to judge the earth? It's someone who, at the mildest offense, yells, screams, pouts, and flies off the handle. And and see, I think we all laugh there because we know it's not mature to behave this way. But I think if we could have real talk, we've all been there. Um, Maybe you were there this past week. I think, um, I was thinking about this week, I, I, I think we all know it's no fun to be irritable. I don't think it's fun for the people in our life to have to walk around on eggshells around us because they're afraid to set us off. I don't think anybody wants to live this way. So the question I thought we could maybe spend some time thinking about is, well, then why do we do it? Why are we irritable if we can laugh at it and say, man, who does that? Oh, wait a second. See, as I was thinking about this week, here's what I'm realizing. I am irritable when I'm simply reacting to the things happening around me. Um, And so oftentimes, my irritability says a lot more about me and what I'm going through and what's going on in my life than what the other person has done to me to where my reaction is totally disproportionate because I'm not engaging with them. I'm just reacting based on what's going on in my life. And, and see, here, this is the point in the message where your inner defense lawyer will pop up and say, he's not talking about you. That person shouldn't have cut you off. That was legitimately dangerous. You have every right to be mad. But when we react to minor offenses with irritability and misplaced anger and then try to explain it away and justify it, it is like throwing gasoline on the fire where what was maybe once a small conflict can blow up into something big. Uh, King Solomon, the wisest human who ever lived, uh, talked about this. Listen to what he writes in Proverbs 15, 18. He says, a hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but the one who is slow to anger calms strife. This is what Paul is getting at when he says love is not easily angered. See, irritability and anger might be the natural response. Because nobody likes being sinned against, even if it's something relatively minor and stupid. Nobody likes that. And so irritability, anger might be the natural response to these things, especially when we have so much going on in our life. But what Paul, what Solomon are saying is there is a better way. The way Paul calls love, which rather than reacting to others, it slows down. And in so doing, 
gives the time and the space for the temperature in the moment to come down instead of pour gasoline on it to make it explode even further. hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but one who is slow to anger calms strife. Think about your life. Are you the kind of person that when you walk into a conflict, things tend to calm down or to ramp up? That's what Paul's getting at here. And if this is something you want to grow in, if you're like, man, I would love to calm strife. Everyone in my life seems stressed out, angry, and dialed up to 11 at all times. I'd love to be a calming influence. If you'd like to do that, it starts with us. Here's an exercise a counselor gave to Karen and me a few years ago um, that I would just commend to you. Uh, See, we were stuck in a cycle, in a pattern of reacting to one another. And so when I say that uh, misplaced anger and irritability throws gasoline on a fire where something small could get very big, I'm talking from experience. Um, and, And so we had a counselor that loved Jesus and also just understood humans and was able to help us out and maybe call balls and strikes and see some things. And, and they gave us this exercise here um, that when we have used it, has breathed so much life into our marriage. I want to give it to you today. Here is the exercise. When you feel tempted to anger, it's something small or stupid. And for now, let's just assume it's small or stupid because your inner defense lawyer is going to justify everything. When you feel tempted to anger, try this out. Try filling in these blanks. When you blank, I feel blank. So I need you to blank. Uh, Let me give you a recent example from our home, because I know that's abstract. Let me give you a recent example from our home that I'll share with Karen's permission. Um, We have uh, an apricot tree in our house, uh, in our backyard, not in our house, that'd be weird. Uh, In our backyard, and it's way overgrown. And so, um, Karen, you know, you need to deal with this. Yeah, I I like yard work. I I really enjoy that. But what Karen told me is... um, Respectfully, you don't know how to do this stuff, so get help. Call somebody. Call John Gingrich. He can help you. You need help. You talk about the value of community. And so I said, yeah, 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 I'll do that. And then I realized I have Google. So I thought, okay, I'll Google it. And if Google can't help me, then I'll call John. Um, Because guys don't like to ask for help, right? Anyone else? Okay. Um, And so I Googled it. I, I, I felt like I got the instructions from on high. I realized how to trim this tree. And so I went at it. I spent an afternoon really trimming at this tree, getting up there, risking my life. And I felt like I did a great job. Maybe it was a little short. When Karen saw it, she disagreed. Uh, she acted like I'd hacked the limbs off of one of our children. And so then that reaction, it started to stir up some things in me. And so I could feel myself revving up. Now, here's what I'll say to Karen's credit. She very quickly came back and said, I'm sorry for getting angry over a tree. And when we talked about it, here's what she said about that experience. And I wrote this down so I could make sure to get it. I had Karen give this to me last night. I wrote it down to make sure to get this right. Here's Karen filling in the blanks on that ordeal. When you... Don't ask for help. Kill all the good parts of my fruit tree and leave a mess of almost ripe fruit on the ground to clean up. I feel embarrassed, wasteful, and disregarded. And so I need you to hire somebody in the future. 
That's the way of love. And here's what I'll tell you. When I heard that, that finally gave me some understanding. And additionally, it overcame my pride to where I thought, I actually do want to ask for help. It's a miracle. This is what love does when rather than being irritable and give ourselves over to anger over small stuff, if we can be slow to anger and communicate, we could change the world. When you blank, I feel blank, and so I need you to blank. Now, here's the thing. You don't need to be rigid with this formula. Uh, the idea is to slow down and consider your own emotions and learn how to communicate rather than simply reacting and flying off the handle at the smallest infractions because this is the way of love. Love is slow to anger. And it's a lot harder than just reacting to take a step back and to breathe and go, what's going on right now? Why does this set me off? Let's talk about it. It's a lot harder to do that. But this has the power to breathe life into any situation. And to rather than throw gasoline on the fire, actually calm it down and begin to heal and to breathe new creation. This is the way of love. A hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but the one who is slow to anger calms strife. Now, um, some of you are like, I don't struggle with that at all. I'm not irritable. In fact, all the people laughing around me, I think, have issues that they resonate with this. I I'm not irritable. Okay, well, that's great. This chapter wants to address you too. So um, some of us, we get angry, we react, we blow up, we're irritable. But others of us, we don't blow up, we just get resentful. Um, Paul calls this keeping a record of wrongs. See, when someone wrongs us, sometimes we don't react, we just write them off. Uh, we take whatever wrong they have done and we begin to define them by that action. So, so for example, they weren't late, they're always late. Um, they didn't make a mistake. They're unreliable. Uh, they didn't mess up. They are messed up. See, anytime you begin to use these identity-based statements like you are or you always, that's a pretty strong indicator that somewhere in your soul you may be keeping a record of wrongs against this person. Where you are defining them not by the good that they do, but by the bad, you're keeping a record of wrongs. And look, um, I think this too can be a natural reaction. See, we go, well, man, I don't want to be hurt again. We already said it doesn't feel good to be sinned against, so I don't want to be hurt again. And so especially if it's something more serious than cutting a tree too far, if it's something deep that actually wounds us and can scar us for life, then we can begin to go, okay, I'm not going to let that happen to me again. And so I'm going to remember this. I'm going to keep a list. I'm going to check it twice. And I'm going to keep score. And I will keep my distance from that person the next time this comes up so that I won't be hurt again. It's a very natural reaction. The problem is um, every human being is a mixed bag of good bad. This is what it means when the Bible tells us that humans are made in the image of God, that we have dignity, that we have glory in us, but the Bible also says that we are broken by sin. 
That means that every human is a mixture of good and bad. Every person you've ever met. Um, I was doing premarital counseling with a wonderful couple this week, and we got to the session on conflict. And, and I love it. This happens every time. I tell them conflict is inevitable, and they're like, ah, yeah, not for us. We love each other. And I'm like, give it some time. It's cute, but give it some time. Uh, and, and it's not just engaged people. I mean, grandparents are definitely this way. Um, like, I've never met the new parent who doesn't have a biblical view of human nature, of that mixed bag of good and bad, because uh, they're in the thick of it, right? Like, parents, it's never, um, hey, when you got a second, I could use a bottle, right? Like, hey, I don't want to interrupt you. I know you need your sleep. I know you got a long day of work ahead, so just when you have a moment, could you pop in here? No, it's, well, I need attention. Me, I don't care what you've got going on right now. I'm the center of the universe. And so, but see, but the thing is, by the time you become a grandparent, you forget about all that. And so you see a baby, and you're like, they're just so cute and incredible, which is totally true. Image of God, they are cute, they are incredible. But what you've forgotten is they're also tiny terrorists that will hold you hostage until they get their way. <laughs> see, we can tend to forget this in different scenarios, in different settings. Someone resonates with that. But the point is, every human being is a mixed bag of good and bad, even the cute ones. And so if you are keeping score, if you are tallying up the wrongs of other people and writing them off the second they cross whatever arbitrary line you draw of, these are the wrongs I'll accept, but this is the wrong that is unacceptable to me, the second they inevitably cross that line, you write them off, then eventually... There will be nobody you can have a relationship with except for Jesus. Which, I mean, Jesus is awesome. But I'll tell you this, if you have a real relationship with Jesus, he's going to press you on your resentful spirit towards others in your life. Because he loves you. He knows he made you for a relationship not only with himself but other humans. And he wants you to experience a full life. And so he's going to begin to touch on those spaces. Because again, Jesus will say it this way. If you can't forgive others, then it shows that you don't realize how much you have been forgiven. And I want you to know my love. I want you to know the depths of the forgiveness I have given to you. And so even if you just have a relationship with Jesus, I'll tell you this. He's going to begin to press you on these things because he loves you. Because he's for you. If you are going to love anybody at all, you will have to learn how to forgive because humans sin and look sometimes we don't even mean to right sometimes we hurt the people that we love the most and we're trying to do the right thing and in our frailty and our folly and our brokenness even our best attempts at good can end up hurting other people if you want to have meaningful relationships you have to learn to let things go and not hold on to them forever you cannot keep a record of wrongs because if you do, you will wind up having no one in your life that you truly love. Now, um, this doesn't mean you don't address things. Um, this doesn't mean that you just blindly go back to how the relationship was before the hurt occurs, especially if it's something significant or serious. 
Um, Dan Allender has a book called Bold Love where he gets into this idea of how do you forgive others but also have healthy boundaries and not put yourself in a vulnerable situation that wouldn't honor Jesus. Well, um, here's what Dan Allender has to say about this. I think this is really helpful. He writes this. Love, in many cases, is a covering over of the offense with long-suffering patience. But even when love covers over the dead remains of a vicious comment, it does not pretend or naively hope that things will be fine once we get through the current unpleasantness and return to a more comfortable status quo. Love may pardon an offense, but it does not ignore the ugliness and arrogance that blights beauty. Covering it over is not another word for pretending it doesn't exist. Uh, if you want to know how love addresses that which blights beauty, come back uh, next week and especially two weeks from now. We're going to get into that, but I share that today because I know there's some of you that you're so afraid of conflict that you just want to ignore the sin that's been done to you, and you want to pretend like that stuff never happened. But that is not what this chapter is saying. And you might think you're being spiritual. You might think, hey, I'm just not trying to keep a record of wrongs, but I've seen this one play out enough. If you don't address stuff, it actually does lead to resentfulness. Because this isn't saying that you don't address stuff. What it's saying is you don't define people by it. You don't hold it against them. You're willing to forgive. Love doesn't ignore the ugliness that blights beauty. It doesn't pretend things never happened. But it does forgive. Always. Well, what about if they keep doing it? Jesus' disciples asked him that. What if, I, if someone does something seven times? Can you imagine if someone did the same sin seven times? And he's like, I can imagine. They sin against you seven times, you forgive them 77 times. It's a Greek thing, it's a math thing. Basically, he's saying infinity times. That's how my daughter would say it. Forgive us infinity times. What Jesus says is, it doesn't matter how often they keep doing it. You keep forgiving. Rather than dwelling on the wrongs done to us, keeping score of the wrongs done to us, love chooses to let the wrongs done to us go and to not dwell on it anymore. Because this is the better way. Rather than being full of resentment and letting a root of bitterness grow in our heart towards others that creates a distance in our relationship from them, love chooses to forgive. Even as it addresses and has healthy boundaries, love chooses to not define the person by the wrongs that they have done. Love chooses to say, I know that you are more than the wrong you have done, even though that wrong has so significantly impacted me. Love says, I'm going to let this one go. Love keeps no record of wrongs. And this is why I think love is so powerful, because we're not used to this, right? I mean, we live in a cancel culture world where people use the wrongs that we have done to dismiss us, to write us off, to shut us up, and try to make us go away, or to try to make it so I don't have to listen to you because you're X, Y, and Z, because you did this, so I don't have to take any of maybe the legitimate things you just said seriously. I'm going to write you off. And I think if we're honest, 
I think a lot of us can do this to ourselves, where it's not just other people that define us by the wrongs we have done. It's not just the spirit of our age that really applauds keeping a record of wrongs, but I think it's our own broken human hearts that can do this to ourselves. Where we look at what we have done and we think, I'm not worthy of love. And, and maybe you don't say that consciously to yourself, but you know you're doing that if you find yourself frantically trying to do enough good to outweigh the bad in your past. And hoping that at the end of the day, you could tip the scales to someday be worthy of love. You're keeping a record of wrongs against yourself. And whether you're a religious person that tries to do more good than bad with religious means, or you're a secular person that does this by joining the right causes and doing the right things today, the instinct is the same. I think the broken human condition is that we all live with a gnawing sense that we have to measure up. That we have to make ourselves worthy of love. This is why there's so many religions in the world today that says, here's the list of commands from God. If you can do these, you'll be a good person that measures up. The people that don't are the bad people that don't measure up. And yay you, you're on the good team. There's something in the human heart that I think knows we're broken. But rather than going to God to heal us, we try to heal ourselves. And this is what makes the God of the Bible so incredible. From page one of the Bible, the second sin enters the world. God says to our first parents, I'm not going to let that sin stand in between us. He says, I know you will sin. I know you will struggle, but I'm a God who is slow to anger. Remember we saw that in Exodus 34? I'm a God who is slow to anger and rich in steadfast love. And so keep coming to me. My mercies are new every morning. That's something God tells us in the Old Testament. Keep coming to me for forgiveness. I'm a God who loves to forgive. And he proved this by sending his son Jesus into the world, love in the flesh. And on the cross, Jesus canceled cancel culture by taking our sin and nailing it to the tree and declaring that that sin has been dealt with. It has been paid for. And so that can't define you anymore. You don't have to work to outdo the bad you've done. You are forgiven. You are free. Because God, yeah, it's okay to clap for the love of God in church. <laughs> like one person's nervously, yes. Because God loves us, he has chosen to make an end of our sin and remember it no more. This is the gospel. And it's not just that God has chosen to not hold our past sins against us, but what the scriptures tell us is our present struggles and future struggles, all of it has been nailed to the cross with Christ. And so no matter how we struggle, we can know that we can't out God's love. No matter how far we wander from him, God will run farther still with his mercy and his grace to call us home. Because his very nature is to be slow to anger and rich in mercy. And he loves to forgive. That's what the cross is all about. Because God loves us so much, he's taken our sins and nailed it to the cross with Christ and destroyed it in his own flesh, so that he could say, it doesn't matter what you've done. 
not keeping a list of wrongs against you. You can come home this morning. And when you experience love like this, it makes you come alive in new ways. Um, anyone want to testify to that this morning, that the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God has changed your life? Yes! The love of God is powerful, and when you experience being loved like this, it puts lightning in your veins. It lifts you up to new heights and makes things that once seemed impossible begin to happen in your life. It takes a Baptist church that is often not responsive and has people lifting their hands and saying, yes! And, and so many examples we could use, but I think the guy writing this chapter is one of the best examples of this. Or maybe after six weeks, you think of Paul as just this like incredibly spiritual person, never struggled a day in his life, second most righteous person to live after Jesus. I would encourage you to read more of the Bible than this one chapter. When we first meet this man in the book of Acts, uh, he is a grumpy religious person who sees the joy of the Christian people and he hates it. He's offended by the morality. He thinks it's madness. And so he spends his life trying to put an end to the Jesus movement. And then one day he meets Jesus. And he experiences the love of God. And it changes his life to where he goes from an irritable, grumpy, religious person to being the kind of guy that would sacrifice for others. That would be slow to anger when others fail him. That when he gets thrown in prison for the great crime of telling people how much God loves them, he prays for the guards and converts the entire prison. And then he goes on to write one of the most enduring works about love in human history to say, this is the way of life that I found in Jesus, and I've got to tell you about it because this is for you too. The love of God changed Paul's life because this is what the love of God does. It pulls you out of whatever muck and mire you were stuck in, and it gives you a new kind of life. It pulls you up to new heights and begins to work new creation in you. It brings life where there was once only brokenness and death. This is what the love of God does to us, and the same thing happens when the love of God begins to pass through you to the people around you. I'll tell you this, I've seen some gnarly stuff as a pastor. Um, I have seen the worst of how humans can treat other people and what people will do to one another. I have also seen the absolute best in people. As men and women, compelled by the love of God, filled with the Holy Spirit, bent that love outwards towards one another. I've seen marriages that you would think, no way, be healed. I've seen relationships that are so broken, you could write books about it. In fact, there were articles and publications written about it, healed. When love begins to pass, when God's love passes through us to those around us, it can change the world around us. This is what your life can be about. So you don't have to be the kind of person that reacts to everyone around you. You don't have to be the kind of person that's weighed down by resentment. You can be the kind of person who loves like this when you experience being loved by, like this. You can be a force for love and life in this world no matter your background. 
It doesn't matter your station in life. If you're like, well, I'm not popular enough to affect a lot of people. I don't know that I really can have a big impact. What I would tell you is it's not ultimately giftedness or station in life that changes the world. It is simple acts of everyday love as we choose to be slow to anger and to forgive those that hurt us. That is the power that can actually flip this world upside down. It did it in Paul's day, and it can do it again in our day. And so in just a moment, we're going to invite you to come to the table and to celebrate the love of God and just drink and afresh how much he loves us. And before you do that, um, I want to leave you with a couple of questions. Have you been irritable lately? If so, why? What are you so on edge about? Maybe whatever that is, maybe you just confess that to him this morning. Maybe you say, Jesus, I feel like I can't rest until this thing at work is resolved. Would you help me to receive your love so I can breathe out and not walk around dialed to 11 ready to explode on everyone in my life? I'm hanging on to this too tight. Would you help loosen my grip? Would you make your love more real to me so that I could be more relaxed and not react to everyone around me, but walk in love this week? Maybe that's your response as you come forward to the table this morning. Another question I want to ask you is, is there anyone in your life that you need to forgive this morning? Maybe there's someone that you've been keeping a record of wrongs against. Maybe there's a relationship that's broken and and you didn't break it, they broke it. But you've kept them at an arm's length ever since. Maybe today is the day that you forgive them, that you let that offense go, that you let them know, hey, I'm not going to hold this against you anymore. Maybe this is the day you do that for your own sake so you're not bogged down by resentfulness. For the sake of that person. Because in spite of the ways that they've sinned against you, they're still a human worthy of love in all of their imperfections. Maybe today's the day you do it for the sake of this community here at Fair Oaks. As I was praying about this message this week, I had a profound sense from God that I think there's some unforgiveness in this community. Uh, And I I don't know the details, I don't know the stories, but this is something that the Lord had kind of laid on my heart, that maybe there's some hurt from several years ago that just hasn't been addressed. And I know life is complicated, I know you've had your reasons, I know there was a whole pandemic in there, so even if you wanted to go address something, you're like not allowed to go to their house. I get it. conflict just like the world around us. If we are just as easily offended as our neighbors outside these walls, if we are just as counting wrongs against one another and canceling one another as much as you see out there, then how are the people in this valley ever supposed to see of the life-giving and life-changing love of Jesus if we look exactly like that? It is hard to forgive especially when you've let a wound fester. But this is what the love of God empowers us to do. And maybe God brought you here this morning to say, hey, it's time to let that one go. 
to get beyond mere reactions and self-protection to a higher plane of existence that won't only change your life, but has the power to turn this valley upside down. What if you took that step today? What if you said, God, in light of how you have forgiven me, I want to forgive this person. I'm not even there yet, but God, I want to want to. What if you prayed that prayer as you came forward this morning? Here's what I'll tell you from experience. The deeper the wound, when you invite God into that wound and say, I want to forgive this person, that is the place where the love of God will pop into three dimensions for you. Because in human strength, what they've done is unforgivable. They don't deserve your forgiveness. They don't deserve your grace. But the love of God makes impossible things happen. And just as we have been forgiven greater wrongs, we have done against him is we lean in and say, God, I'm going to need your strength. I'm going to need your help. I can't even get the words out my mouth. That is where the Holy Spirit meets us and takes us deeper and deeper into the depths of his love for us. So what if you took that step today? I love you, church. I love getting to be your pastor. Jesus loves you infinitely more than I do. Let's take some time to respond to his love.